0: He truly was remarkably gifted, probably one of the most gifted people in the church since John Henry Newman, but nothing was given to him um, on a platter, and he also worked very hard to penetrate the Word of God with the profundity that he did and with great fidelity and reliance on providence.
1: Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today uh, we have a special show on Pope, the legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and I am joined by my colleague and friend and fellow director
0: of the Aquinas Center of Theological Renewal, Roger Nutt. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm excited to spend a few minutes talking to you about the tremendous life and legacy of Benedict XVI. Right, uh, yes, and thanks so much for being
1: on the show. And I think for so many of our listeners and for, uh, and I know for us, right, uh, from Cardinal Ratzinger to Pope Benedict uh, has really been a figure that has uh, kind of, uh, you know, guided our entire you know, kind of Christian and theological lives.
0: Yeah, you're right. I heard the great American theologian uh, Robert Louis Wilkin once use the metaphor of the furniture of his mind mm. in relation to mm-hmm. his studies. And I think to that point, the point that you just made, that Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict Sixteenth, for really two full generations of Catholic intellectuals and theologians is very much part of the furniture of our mind. And it's hard to think about the faith today, the teaching of the church and the challenges that the church faces and how it ought to respond without um, recourse to his tremendous patrimony, uh, both as a theologian and as a Cardinal and Pope.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And, My understanding, Roger, is that you had a few, right, interactions with him or had developed a bit of a, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your own uh, memories of uh, Ratzinger Benedict.
0: Sure. So I don't want to overstate any level of intimacy. Uh, He would have had no idea who I am. (laughs) But I did live in Rome uh, as a graduate student from 1999 to 2002. And He was Cardinal Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at that time, and there were a number of instances in which I had the opportunity to observe him from up close. A couple of things come to mind. Mm -hmm. He was a man in his own priestly life who really loved the Church. So, for example, on Christmas Eve... 1999 when john paul ii opened the holy door at saint peter's
1: yeah i remember that
0: to inaugurate the great jubilee uh my wife and i arrived very early for the christmas eve mass we got seats right next to the aisle so we could see the procession and, and recession and be close to the pope and joseph ratzinger was right there with the other um cardinal Um, concelebrants, and you could see almost the giddiness and joy uh, in his own um, face and in his eyes uh, at the significance of the event, just living the event. Another thing that he did is every Thursday morning, very, very early, inside the Vatican, not far from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he had a mass open to anyone who wanted to attend. And on on my own, or when I had guests uh, in town who were interested in Catholic theology, we would often wake up early. I had to take two buses: one bus <laughs> to get from uh, my my place to the center of town, and then another bus from Piazza Venezia to the St. Peter's area mm-hmm. uh, to go to those masses. And they were not um, m- masses that were highly controlled. You didn't need a ticket; you could walk in. Um, they what were, a treat. They wow. were often filled with um, German pilgrims. We mm-hmm. forget that Joseph Ratzinger was a major figure in the German church and had deep roots and deep love um, for his homeland, but anyone else could come. I ran into the American theologian and my former teacher, Scott Hahn, at, <laughs> at, at uh, one of those uh, 7 a.m. Masses. And a very concrete memory that I have is uh, my brother-in-law arrived at one of these Masses late, maybe two minutes before the Mass. So we sat in the very back row, and before the bell rang and the procession started, um, Joseph Ratzinger just came out fully vested and knelt on his knees on the hard floor and was literally breathing down our necks because we were um, um, sitting, um, sitting in the back row. And then he would always have a brief receiving line after, so if pilgrims wanted to take a picture... Uh, or, or something like that with him. So I found that you know that that was a pretty remarkable that this major figure in the church uh, who I think was aware of being of having international significance but also being humble uh, and pr- preferring the quiet life was so ready to make himself yeah. Uh, available.
1: Yeah and there is that story too that he wanted right to uh, either, Um, you know, that that would have loved to have continued in a way, right, as a theologian, uh, primarily, but John Paul II, you know, asked him to become, uh, right, the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, and so he really spent most of his, uh, kind of before becoming pope, uh, for what, I think 20 years or more, serving, really helping to carry out John Paul II's you know, call for
0: the renewal of the church. Right. And he um, ended up stating, you know, there are a lot of rumors uh, in the 80s and 90s that he would return to a university position or to a quiet life in Germany and write. And then he ended up saying in a biography that after seeing John Paul II both suffer and labor, um, he realized that um, he couldn't uh, return, you know, or, or 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 simply act on his own preferences, but needed to, uh, you know, continue to serve in whatever way the Lord was was calling him. Um, I also went, you know, this is a little bit of Roman piety, but uh, my doctoral defense was on a Wednesday afternoon in the May, in May of 2005, uh, and you you know you wake up feeling a little unsettled on the day of your doctoral defense. So since it was Wednesday. Uh, my wife and I and uh, my mother-in-law, who was, was with us, we dutifully went to the Wednesday audience, which was shortly after his election. Um, so I've always carried uh, that <laughs> you know, experience, uh, feeling that he helped uh, nudge me across the, the finish line by being close to him on the day of my uh, doctoral defense. Um, something that I've always cherished is when I first came to Ave Maria, I was worried that um, I wouldn't make, continue to make progress as a scholar. I was teaching new classes, and we had just navigated a move. So I was looking for a project that I could execute, and I happened to find in the Italian Journal of Comunio a homily that he had given on the wedding at Cana. And I did some research and found that it had never been translated into English, so I reached out to the English Journal of Comunio. And uh, they um, they accepted it for publication. So, in one small instance, I got to be the voice of Joseph Ratzinger um, in in English. Uh, the the um, little homily came out in a two th- in two thousand six in the Journal of Comunio under the title um, "The Sign of Cana," and he says some very beautiful things about Our Lady uh, and the wedding at Cana. That's wonderful, and that in
1: in some ways interesting that he would write on that because. Uh, he had such a great love of right of of the Bible, specifically as a um, uh, irreplaceable right source of theological reflection. You know, it also is interesting that you go back to the early days of Ave Maria. I remember at that time I was working for then Provost Father Joseph Fessio, uh, who had been a student. He had done his uh, doctoral dissertation under Joseph Ratzinger right. uh, several decades before. And so there was a lot of excitement in 2005 when uh, Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope Benedict the 16th. And I actually remember one morning at 4 a.m. driving Father Fessio to the NBC recording studio somewhere in Naples anyway, and he was doing a lot of these things. But, but it is interesting how just on a personal level, uh, this kind of connection with Pope Benedict through his students, and through one of his uh, students in particular, kind of, I don't know, made us, I think, feel not only, uh, you know, kind of appreciative of a brilliant mind and a faithful steward and uh, steward in the church, but also someone, I remember, you know, uh, Father Fessio telling stories about how that when, Uh, At that time, Professor Ratzinger would lead seminars uh, that he would just let everyone talk, he would listen, uh, and then at the very end, after everybody else had kind of, you know, uh, run out of their, uh, you know, emptied their kind of intellectual gas tanks, so to speak, you know, then he would, you know, offer like a 10-minute just, you know, kind of perfect reflection that somehow incorporated what had been said but was able to reformulate it in this penetrating way. And so I think we always had a deep sense of his gentleness, right? right? The deep gentleness of a real scholar who, uh, even when he was, of course, sometimes having to, uh, you know, a- uh, encounter or, you know, reject false teachings or false practices in the life of the church uh was still doing it from a right a love of the truth and a you know kind of uh kind of a warmth personality and I think it's maybe it just was an interesting kind of unique way again that our personal experiences kind of overlapped a little bit with Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict
0: right and um Father Fessio's ongoing interaction with with Benedict through the Ratzinger Circle and his publishing initiative, I think, did give us a sense of proximity to to him, and it also was part of the animating principle, I think, of the theology curriculum here and the. Um, uh, graduate school um, here here at the university which I think we'll talk about a little yeah. bit. You online. said
1: Father Lamb by the way, had uh, who was uh, the, really the founding uh, the founding uh, professor of our theology department and the graduate program in theology, Father Matthew Lamb, he had taken a class with, Professor Ratzinger, as well, correct?
0: That's right. He was um, in the, um, he got his doctorate from the University of Munster, but the university system in Germany is very much like a system. And so my understanding is that he had a, um, either Ratzinger was having a semester in Munster, or Father Lamb um, sort of, uh, n- you know, navigated some of the different theology faculties during his time in Germany, and had the privilege of having one of uh, those seminars with Joseph Ratzinger um, as well. So, you know, and he has fond memories uh, of that uh, of that encounter as well. Um, one other personal point of interaction that I had with him that I think is quite remarkable is over the years when something would happen at the university that I thought would be of interest to him, especially after I joined the administration, I would write to him and make him aware uh, of it. Like if, if one of our conferences pr- produced a, a volume, um, I would send it to him. Um, or recently when my book on Anointing of the Sick to Die as Gain came out, which was covered in a previous episode on the podcast, um, I sent him a copy of the book, and I put sticky tabs on pages where I quoted him, and I thanked him you know, for, for his work and, and for the inspiration that it gave to me. And he got in the, in the uh, pattern frequently of writing back, Uh, which I cherish I have um, on the desk here. So the last one, um, I sent him a copy of the book with a letter thanking him. And um, he sent back one of his own books, which was a series of uh, his papal writings uh, called on love published by Ignatius press uh, that included um, a card and a printed letter and um, a bookmark with his papal um, picture and signature on the back. And so uh, I thought that's a sign in a sense of the gentle personality. It's not that I don't want to say that he's sitting in Rome saying, hey, let's write Ave Maria University <laughs> or let's write Roger. He had a staff and a, and a household that, that helped him. But to be the kind of person that at least makes small gestures um, uh-huh. when um, he must have received you know, um, hundreds if not thousands of pieces of mail uh, each week. So I cherish That's those, beautiful. Um, you know, those little, those little uh, cards. And, and that was only six, the...
1: that was what, six months ago that your book on the anointing of the sick, sick came out. That's right. I think and I probably so,
0: got this in July. Uh, well, maybe May, maybe May. But so, but
1: last, so the summer of 22, right? Six months before he's uh, mo- moving on through the portals of death, he, uh, at, you know, he's still kind of making sure that uh, he's receiving and responding to uh, those, those, those gestures. that's really, that's really, it's a beautiful, I think, uh, his, his, his love of the individual and attention to the person in front of him, I think was a real, uh, special gift. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of our memories. Maybe one thing that I think would be helpful is talk, to maybe let's talk a little bit about some of his own biography because, uh, he almost, I think he, he was born in 27.
0: Right. Uh, so he's,
1: uh, think lived to uh, to be you know 95 and really spanned of course most of the 20th century and and well into the you know 21st century and his own story is actually you know you could you could make a movie about it it it's actually quite he was at a lot of the pivotal moments both in the history of Europe and in the history of the church right. so could you say a little bit about his biography that some of our listeners may not
0: yeah uh, one thing that comes to mind that's very general is that, in a way, his life and his passing is very much uh, the end of an era in the church. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, they're just—he—he he was a priest also for over seventy years, lived mm-hmm. to ninety, um, the age of ninety-five. So there aren't very many figures left in the church who were ordained well before the council and who lived, you know. Roman Catholicism in Europe uh before the council who were involved in the council who were active theologians in the university system in the late 60s and 70s and then bishops cardinals and curial figures and popes you know mm-hmm. in the new millennium yeah. Yeah. and so um I don't I suspect that if there are any living bishops um who participated in the council we're down to a handful yeah cuz he,
1: he would have been uh, you know, then I guess priest right priest Ratzinger right
0: he was a rising star but he would in his have been thirty five
1: or so when he was in sixty two when the council began and he was a, a an expert a, a peritus right. at the council he would have been right thirty five
0: right and John so. Paul II was one of the youngest voting bishops. Mm-hmm at the council but pope francis for example who is 85 was ordained i believe three years after the council in 1968 so to your point about the um his longevity and the interesting points that his life um, touched um he is one of the very last figures who um, internalized within himself and lived through within himself uh, all of the, you know, all of these major events in the church and the entirety of John Paul II's uh, papacy. The way, you know, the way that he collaborated with him. So that's unique. But yeah. it's also interesting uh,
1: that puts in context one of the things that he would, uh, I think, write as uh, early on as Pope, as you may remember, was the need for, to reject the hermeneutics of discontinuity. Uh, And what he meant by that, hermeneutics is a fancy word for kind of a a, a mode of interpretation. And he rejected any idea that there was such a thing as like a pre-Vatican II church and a post-Vatican II church. There was one church. There was no rupture. There could be no rupture in the church. There could be no discontinuity. And so he said we had to like reject that and see within that right um, a uh, right, um, kind of some unity of life of the church. And one of the interesting things, this wasn't just an idea for him, it was actually, right, a lived reality. Right. That he knew that, he, you know, that, that he, he his own biography, his own life as a priest and, right, and a theologian and eventually a bishop, cardinal, and pope, he, he lived through all of those different things. So he could also personally
0: uh, attest to the fact that it was one. Right, right. And, um that came, that that witness came at great personal sacrifice at many points in his life. As a teen, in um, late middle school and high school, the Nazis ruled the co- the country and um, controlled his school. He recounts in his biography that they would. Uh, make the students wear uniforms and um, sit in gunnery posts and march around the school and um, stand in front of the flag. So he experienced, in a way, the violence of... Uh, extreme secular ideology Mm -hmm. he experienced a lot of human uncertainty in his biography milestones he talks about and we would never appreciate this even though he wasn't a member of the German army or a Nazi how dangerous and uncertain it was to be a young man in your late teens in the months after the war when the Allied forces were securing Germany So he actually had to spend a fair amount of time in what was essentially like a clearinghouse camp. You didn't just walk home, Mm -hmm. you know, because there are all these checkpoints, and they would have assumed that most young German men were, you know, former members of, of, of the army. So he had a period of uncertainty where he was essentially in a camp, and had to wait until his name and social security number and so on could be cleared and verified. Yeah, and he could I be. I think I remember
1: there. that time that he had been, uh, cause right. He would have been 12 when the uh, national socialists went to war in 39. So right. he's a 12 year old during when the war begins, he would have been six when they came to power. So he's 12. And then when he was, I think 14, they sent him off to some thing. So he was separated from his family. Right. Uh, and then really comes home when the allies have won or something, he would have gone from 12 to six years later, that would have been, you know, 18. So he really is separated from his family as well. Right. From a lot of those kind of like, I think, 14 to 18 period. And right, he comes home with a sense that like, I want to I want to go to the seminary. I want to give my life fully to Christ.
0: Right. And not knowing what he would find. Um, mm-hmm. would, would his parents be okay? Would, um, it, you know, they didn't his have father, email texting. Yeah. And uh, his
1: father had been a, a kind of a, a
0: uh, like a, a critic of the Nazis, which was very, you know, very dangerous. Right. Right. Uh, so, you know, you can, it's hard to imagine mm-hmm. the difficulty of that experience. Uh, and to, to mm-hmm. your point in a, in a, and a boy and then young man, yeah. ages 12 to 18. Yeah. Something intri- else that I've always found intriguing from his biography that I talk about with our students sometimes and we can take consolation in is that just because somebody has remarkable gifts and talents doesn't mean their life mm. is easy. mm mm-hmm. And we've just shared one difficulty. But when he was an advanced graduate student, he submitted a draft of his dissertation to the theology faculty. And he kind of gently recounts that maybe there was a bit of jealousy by one person on the panel who wrote with a lot of red ink about the unacceptability of certain aspects of the dissertation that he had um, submitted. And basically, it was rejected and he had a moment of trial and frustration and anguish, and he thought about it, and he looked at the comments, and then he realized that almost all of the comments were just on one part of the dissertation, and he could excise that part of the dissertation and kind of rewrite the general thesis, and he resubmitted it, um, and it passed. But to think that someone (laughs) like Joseph Ratzinger— um, had yeah. to, you know, almost stro- failed his dissertation. Right. That's, yes. Right is, um, um, and something that he, you know, spoke about openly, um, r- retrospectively. But the fact that you know there's a pattern of persevering uh, in faith uh, in his life. So he truly was um, remarkably gifted. Probably one of the most gifted people in the church since John Henry Newman, but. Nothing was given to him um, on a platter, and he also worked very hard to penetrate the word of God with the profundity that he did and with great fidelity and reliance on providence.
1: It's amazing, too, that having lived first under the totalitarian dictatorship of the National Socialists, then later seeing from... You know, again, sometimes maybe in America we forget this, but from 1945 to 1990, uh, the, or was it 89, I guess, when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, But for those 45 years, as a German, right, pastor, priest, bishop, Germany is split. Right. Between East Germany and West Germany with, right, the Berlin Wall, you know, people being killed, trying to escape East Germany. And... So seeing then the totalitarian dictatorship of the then Soviet Union, uh, that in 2005, when he was asked by the cardinals in the conclave after the death of John Paul II, right, that he was asked to give a homily. And in the homily, he spoke about the dictatorship of relativism, right? He's seen dictatorships. This is, not a meta, this is not a loose word for him. He's seen the, uh, and yet he would see somehow in the West, uh, and perhaps, of course, globally, this relativism as one of the greatest threats that he saw in his life. And, you know, maybe, uh, after, let's take a little break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about his commitment to truth, uh, his commitment to the firmness of faith. And let's see how kind of theologically in his writings and in his teachings, he you know, carried forward that idea that you know, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. There's a beautiful story uh, that's been reported from, I think, the archbishop that was with Pope Benedict, Emeritus, Pope Emeritus Benedict, when, when he passed away, right, that his last words were, I love you, Jesus. Uh, and I remember a few months ago, maybe, or sometime in the last year, he'd written that, you know, death is not something to be feared. Death is the encounter with a friend, right? right? Uh, death is the encounter with Jesus. And, you know, I think that maybe some people, when they hear that, think that, Um, You know, like, oh, rather than, like, deep theology and all that stuff, we can simply have this kind of, uh, this simple love of Jesus. But I think that would be to misunderstand Pope Benedict. I think for Pope Benedict, that sense of, I love you, Jesus, is, of course, a truth that everyone, without, you know, everyone can uh, affirm. And what a beautiful way to move on to encounter our Lord. But I think for Pope Benedict, that really was the heart of his theological reflection. And it was theological reflection that allowed that statement to continue to be true and saving. Because it really matters who Jesus is. And and I think in a way, you know, uh, Pope Benedict would write, I think it's like in the second paragraph of his encyclical Deus Caritas Est, which I believe came out in 2006, uh, which means God is love. But he began with that idea that Christianity is not simply the adoption of an ethical way of life. It's not merely an ideology, but it's an encounter with an event, with a person, an encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ. I know that when Pope Benedict spoke on Catholic education at, in 2008, at Catholic University of America, when he visited, he his basic uh, he began that again with the idea that uh, at the heart of Catholic education, right, is the encounter with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. That all of theology has that encounter with Jesus Christ, and so I thought maybe what we could do for people who may not know a lot about. Pope Benedict, or people who have maybe read a lot of Ratzinger. I I know we teach a fair amount of uh, Ratzinger and Benedict in our courses, and I know our students have read some things, but I thought maybe a way of organizing his thinking and his writing and his theological legacy would be that all of theology is about the encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ, and we do that primarily in five ways. First, with our reason. Secondly, from the Bible. Third, through the creed. Fourth, in the liturgy, and then fifth, unto heaven. And so, let's. I want to just talk with you a little bit and ask you to help us kind of go through these ideas, so that you know. Yes, in some ways, right. His his work and his legacy will continue to be received and passed on uh, by the church, uh, and intellectuals, and theologians, and students, and so many people for so long, uh, but that you know, I think there are these key principles, uh, and I think it's helpful to have a little bit of a map of the forest uh, so we don't get lost. So beginning with this first idea that, can you tell us a little bit about why did Pope Benedict think it was so important to defend reason?
0: Yeah, a a number of things come to my mind. Uh, The first really it overarches the point that you just made, and that is he did believe in truth. Yes. And for him, truth was not merely um, some subjective thing that we cling to through our feelings, but uh, truth about the natural order, about God's creation, and the things that God has revealed is uh, real And we might even say, uh, to use a medieval term, um, scientific. And so he defended reason because uh, he knew that uh, we could know the truth about reality and we could know the truth that God has revealed and that whether it's reason elevated by faith or reason that's fascinated with the created um, order of things, that reason... Uh, and rationality is the way that we encounter the truth and know the truth, and hopefully then in in faith, you know, love and and hope in the truth. I, I would also say, too, that there's a subtle distinction in his thinking that comes out formally in one of the documents that the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith produced when he was prefect, a document called Dominus Iesus, uh, it was released uh, during the year two thousand when I was living in Rome, and he was uh, Joseph Ratzinger in particular in the Holy See were really criticized by the media during the warmth of the Holy Year of of issuing this this teaching document that made some very important distinctions about the truth of the Christian faith, and one of those distinctions is that faith. Uh, in, the, in the revealed sense of the term, pistis in Greek or fides in Latin is not credulity. And so we often think, like, if, if you talk to someone on the street or you meet someone at the grocery store and you would say, like, hey, are you a person of faith? We mean something very vague um, by that, like, I am very loosely religious. Um, but Joseph Ratzinger understood that, a person of faith in the biblical sense isn't someone who has mere credulity.
1: Or like mere belief.
0: Right. Uh, But they have true knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, certain knowledge uh, about the world through the word of God.
1: Yeah, in his encyclical uh, Space Alvi* by Hope We Are Saved, uh, there he actually goes back to talk about uh, faith, and he goes back to Aquinas' treatment of faith. But he says, right, faith is genuine knowledge of a reality that has been revealed to us. Yeah, so the knowledge we have is a unique knowledge. It's um, through faith. It's through believing the words that have been spoken to us by Jesus, but nonetheless, it is true knowledge. And when the mind assents to that truth in faith, then it comes to know something. It comes to know someone Uh, He also, in his uh, Regensburg Address, also in 2006, uh, he really emphasized the idea that God is Logos. God is, Logos is a uh, Greek word for reason or speech, uh, almost kind of truth in a way, our capacity to express truth. And the idea, he said, right, it's very important to believe that God is not, so to speak, so divine that he's beyond truth. So he's not beyond reason. Yes, our reason cannot fully comprehend God, but nonetheless, our reason can come to know God, and therefore what God reveals to us is somehow in accord with our reason.
0: Right. He often uses a phrase, different variations of the word combination, inner logic. And so he usually sees a revealed point, and then he sees how there's an inner intelligibility to it, and so we often say, we often have this vision of God that his omnipotence makes him an arbitrary agent, that you can't understand it. Yeah. It's abstract, and God just does whatever he wants because that's what it means to be God. And that's kind of what he was getting at a little bit in the Regensburg Address, with there's a, you know, a certain approach to monotheism that sees God as an arbitrary and unintelligible agent and one of the amazing things about Joseph Ratzinger's thought is that he always found an inner logic in the revealed mystery, yeah. and was able to tease out uh, that that inner that inner logic in a, w- with a level of profundity that you don't you know you don't find in, in standard uh, theological work.
1: Right. Yeah. That's and that is really important, right? If if God is merely power and we merely and 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 I think there can be even a desire to kind of show God's so great how can I understand him well partially true but God's also uh intelligible he's actually the source of all intelligibility so and he speaks uh,
0: to us so that we yes, can understand because he him.
1: wants us to come to know him and so I think it's very important right that he emphasized the idea of, of that we, we 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 believe in God with our reason uh, even if also he would also say right it's an act we have to make a decision to believe and trust in God. This second theme is the idea of the Bible. So that it's from the Bible. He want, really wanted, became a, in many ways a biblical theologian. Uh, he, he wrote a three-volume series, Jesus of Nazareth uh, as Pope. Uh, his, the synod uh, that he really oversaw and uh, the, that ended up publishing as an apostolic exhortation was on Verbum Domini, the word of the Lord, again on scripture. Uh, He gave a famous 1988 Erasmus lecture in which he called uh, the study of Scripture, especially in in any kind of historical critical method, he said it had to not proceed from anti-theological philosophical assumptions, but had to begin with a proper understanding that God could speak into a world and act into a world that he had created. Right. Uh, and so maybe would you just say a few words that you thought were important for his recovery of the Bible as a book of the church instead of a book of, you know, instead of a book maybe of just the kind of scientific specialists?
0: Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. One of the amazing characteristics of Joseph Ratzinger's work is that he was able to engage the most cutting-edge contemporary scholarship, but never be completely befuddled or overtaken by it. And so when it comes to scripture studies in particular, and there's a long history here, he was always able to unlock the kernel of insight but show where the kernel of insight connected with the 2,000-year history of the faith Mm -hmm. of the church and never allow the divorce of the scholar from the reality of faith that we just discussed to make the academic discipline um, estranged from... From the faith. Could you? Think, is,
1: are there any examples that come to mind, maybe from the Jesus of Nazareth uh, s- series? I know one thing I, uh, in, in this foreword to the first uh, one that came out, uh, he said basically that, uh, you know, it's this question of how historical are the Gospels and Vatican II, uh, Dei Verbum, of which he was both a contributor and, uh, and you know, uh, uh, and helped to receive it. He emphasized uh, emphasizes right the historic the historicity of the gospels, and when, when he wrote this as, as Pope and Jesus of Nazareth, he he just he said you know there are many things that could be said about it right uh, there are different ways that you could you can argue from the Gospel of John to show the, the this is not written like a legend it's written like an eyewitness as um uh, C.S. Lewis would say, um, but he summarizes all of this four words. He says, "I trust the gospels. Right. right. That if you begin to distrust the gospels, there's just no Christianity. And really, of course, if we distrust the gospels, well, that also means I'm distrusting all communication. Right. I'm going to be left in again a dictatorship of relativism. Right. Uh, and I, I just love that simplicity. That this is uh, probably one of right. He's he's read more biblical theology and biblical uh, studies." Uh, Almost, you know, certainly than any other, you know, Pope ever probably has or or may have, or and but I trust the Gospels,
0: right. One example that comes to mind is from his engagement with Psalm one ten in the introduction to Christianity. And Psalm one ten is famously the Psalm, uh, "My Lord said to my Lord," and he points out that critical scholars view that really as an. Uh, expression of the ancient Near Eastern idea that kings and kings' sons are descendants of the gods. Yes. But then turns it on its head and says, well, perhaps the Lord and the limits of that ancient Near Eastern culture inspired an author to say something that actually was a revelation of the true picture of God being an eternal father with an eternal son so he takes a thread of scholarship that could go really far afield yeah. and says in in a sense like they don't even get that that they're on to something that's really you know has, has deep continuity yeah uh, that's with, really with the Christian very faith.
1: powerful i remember he does the same thing in introduction to christianity with psalm 2 which says right you are my son today i have begotten you and so the idea that kings would be kind of descendants of the gods was a pagan notion But what you see in the scriptures is that idea being completely turned upside down because now the kings of Israel are not of a divine lineage. They are adopted by God as the anointed in their coronation. So in the very act, it unmasks all of the claims of kings to be of divine lineage. So kings are not of divine lineage. They're chosen, adopted. Right. All of Israel is not of divine li- lineage, but it is chosen. Christians are not of divine lineage. We are chosen, adopted. Right. right. So it's really a powerful idea. Let's uh, shift to uh, the next, the third idea of right, the Creed. Uh, Pope Benedict, when he wrote his Introduction to Christianity, uh, which was uh, published, I think, in 1968, and it was given as a series of lectures in 1967 in, at a uh, university in Germany. Uh, he dedicated that introduction to Christianity, mean, he organized it around the creed. Uh, and he said, right, whatever you want to say about Christianity, it's fundamentally about believing certain things about God, the truth about God, and the truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, so would you just, you know, again, help us to understand or help listeners to understand a little bit about why is the creed so important for you know, for kind of the living encounter with Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. Joseph Ratzinger says something amazing in a work, uh, a collection of essays that ends up, I think, being called um, "Principles of Fundamental Theology." Mm-hmm. He says that the apostles, uh, and this this would scare academic theologians today, but he was a bold. He said the yeah. apostles were the normative theologians, mm-hmm. because the words that they spoke, their theological writings, in a sense, are the Word of God. And that if you think about it, that's kind of a high standard mm-hmm. um, to think that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually picked up a pen and through the mystery of divine inspiration were actually able to write the Word of God. But he also says that dogma is simply the accurate interpretation of Scripture And today we have lost a sense that uh, the Creed is not just a series of propositions that you check, but every article of the Creed is a direct line back to a truth revealed in the gospel that is essential to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so that set of lectures that became Introduction to Christianity was really Joseph Ratzinger's attempt at a very chaotic time in the church in the late 60s to engage contemporary problems, but to do so by showing how the articles of the creed, which he believed were direct extensions of the truth of the gospel, um, are intelligible today, and not only intelligible today, but actually um, address the problems um, and struggles that we have, uh, yep. to to mm-hmm. use a word, um, in his biography, he talks about his co-founding of the journal communio in response to the direction that another journal Concilium, was going in after the council. It was, it was, um, going in the direction of discontinuity. Yeah, more like a, a liberal progressive. Right. Model. Right, and so he and a couple of his friends founded the journal Communio, and of course the word Communio, communio means communion, mm-hmm. which in a way is right at the heart of Joseph Ratzinger's thinking. The Eucharist makes the church, uh, as you and Father Mancini noted in a previous episode, where the church is, there, there the Eucharist um, is, but he uses the word to describe what they were trying to do with the founding of Communio. He uses the word foil. And I believe that the his recourse to the creed and the introduction to Christianity was very much of that spirit, that he was engaging and referencing contemporary trends in theology and philosophy and cultural trends, but using the creed as a foil to show that the faith can still stand up yeah. to those challenges.
1: I know when whenever I read or teach... Uh, introduction to Christianity, uh, which I really think is just a beautiful work. Uh, it's it's profound how he's able to go back to the creed, right, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And he talks about the sense of God is. I believe in God as Father and Almighty. He's both personal and cosmic, right? Uh, he's the one who created the earth, heaven and earth, right? So the world has been created; it's intelligible. I believe in Jesus Christ as only Son. This. God, who is the creator, is also somehow uh, interpersonal, and he has come, that son has become incarnate. Uh, he goes through the, you know, the, the story of Jesus and the creed, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the church. And one of the things that I think is really unique is he shows how each of these truths are not abstract, but they're existential and meaningful. They move us from loneliness and despair to communion and hope. So maybe let's talk a little bit about where that happens, which is the fourth point in the liturgy. I think you taught a whole course once on the liturgical theology of Pope Benedict. Uh, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd love you just to you know, discuss a little bit about uh, maybe his great book, Spirit of the Liturgy, or kind of a few key ideas that you found helpful in your own understanding of the liturgy or as you're teaching liturgical theology and sacramental theology to our students.
0: Yeah, I've been grateful to you over the years, for inviting me, you and Father Fessio, for inviting me to teach that class my first year uh, here at the university. And since then, I have always used the spirit of the liturgy for the first several weeks of the class that we offer on the sacraments, and I think if someone's looking for an accessible introduction to Joseph Ratzinger's thought and wants to grow in their faith and their appreciation of the church's life of prayer, uh, the spirit of the liturgy is a great place to start. If I could summarize in one idea why his approach to the liturgy is so important, it's as, as a theologian, he didn't understand the church's celebration of the liturgy to be the expression of one um, partisan preference or, or the other, that for him the liturgy wasn't a battle over preferences, that it was a, a divinely revealed gift that Christ handed on to the church. So the, he, he prefaces the whole book by exegeting Moses' Fair, uh, encounters with Pharaoh during the, the sequence in the book of Exodus uh, where the Egyptians suffer the plagues, and Moses keeps having to go to Pharaoh at God's initiative and saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. Serve meaning um, worship. Yes. And Pharaoh always yes. trying to compromise, well, you don't, don't go that far, don't take this, or don't do that. And ultimately, you know, it ultimately ends in the Exodus. And Ratzinger's takeaway from that is that the liturgy is not something that we make. Mm -hmm. The liturgy is something that is divinely given. There's a right way of worshiping God, and God tells us what that right way is. And so the whole patrimony of Jewish Prefiguration of Christ and the church, and then the Lord's institution of the seven sacraments in the church, is understood by Joseph Ratzinger not to be an expression of a certain cultural preference, but to be an expression of what God gave us in faith. And that's so important because since the council. You know, the church has really been gridlocked in um, an understanding of the liturgy that is largely reducible to uh, taste or artistic um, 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 expression. And for Joseph Ratzinger, all of these things, whether it's church music, the architecture of the building, the art and images that fill the church, there are revealed truths that we can look to in, in the Bible that as followers of Christ, help us adjudicate those questions.
1: That's so helpful that the, uh, because in many other parts of our life, uh, right, we do get to, uh, uh, we can both receive and, uh, you know, and we we, we can make up. There's nothing wrong with writing a brand new story, so to speak, as long as it somehow respects things. But the liturgy is not that. The liturgy is something that is really given. And in many ways, I think you can see here, how right the Bible and the Creed and the Liturgy all go together. The Creed is something that is given, so it's our job to receive. These are this is the truth of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, and what uh, right the what the One God uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing in history. Right, and we receive those, and they're knowable. Right, and in the same way, the liturgy is something that is a given to be received, not something that is us. It's not for us to create. Right. You know, there's fine to be creative in storytelling. It's the liturgy is not the realm of uh, creativity, and not to for, not yeah. for
0: us to manipulate. And know?
1: I think one of the things that's also interesting, both in terms of the creed and the liturgy, uh, he also describes how we have to renounce. Right. In baptism, you not only have do you believe, but do you renounce? Right, Satan, do you renounce the world? Do you renounce its lies? And, uh, and, he, and he says the same thing both in terms of what we believe and in terms of how what we worship. We have to renounce certain worldly ways. Uh, he emphasized the idea, right? To become a Christian is to convert right. from worldly ways of believing and worshiping and acting to godly ways. Right there, 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 There's a newness to saying something. I could not have figured this out on my own. Right. right, my own attempts would have failed. Right, uh, is, is such a powerful
0: my own reality. attempts not only would have failed but would have made a a mess yeah. um, of you know of the situation. And his confidence in the word of God to lead us to the realm of, of light was you know uh, something that 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 shows up in every aspect of his theology.
1: Yeah, and so this last point, uh, fifth point, I wanted to talk about is that it's unto heaven. And uh, that so this encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ is, is unto heaven. And in some ways this is a great place, uh, you know, to kind of begin concluding our reflections. Uh, tell us a little bit about he wrote a beautiful, I consider it one of his uh, you know, greatest works uh, of, of his uh, teaching in the encyclical Space Salvi uh, by Hope we are saved. Uh, could you say a little bit about his understanding of heaven and why he thinks that that is particularly maybe the crisis of our age?
0: Yeah. Space Salvia is such a fascinating magisterial document because it responds and answers to a lot of the s- struggles that we have in our um, current age, which we don't realize are not that different than, say, uh, if, if we grew up as pagans. Mm-hmm. And what, what I mean by that is he refers there to—it's hard for us to imagine it, if there were no hope, no light, mm-hmm. no avenue— you're, you're just reduced to—you're uh, you're cornered in life. Uh, there's a drought. Your God has obviously left your neighborhood, and there's nowhere mm-hmm. to turn. So for him, no matter how hard this life is, no matter how disappointing this life is, the truth of the faith— and he actually talks about the almost the interchangeability of hope and faith. Hope yes. is faith in the document yeah. that— our true homeland is heaven, and the gospel sheds light on the full meaning of our life in such a way that no matter how um, disappointing or frustrating our lives can be or the things of this world can be, no matter how much uh, technology lets us down or disappoints, what true discipleship of Jesus Christ means is that um, our Father's mansion is our true home.
1: Yes, I know in in that story he uh, describes uh, Jesus Christ and the early Christians would see Jesus as the philosopher but also as the shepherd, the one who had in Psalm 23 gone through the valley of the shadow of death and given us hope. Uh, He also there tries to unmask uh, the false claims and beliefs of certain trends in modernity that through science and politics we can somehow achieve heaven on earth. Uh, and he says in a way, those become the most dangerous. And I think he saw those uh, in both uh, national socialism and um, you know S- uh, Soviet communism uh, and therefore wanted to remind us that no and modern liberalism, right, democratic liberalism that wants to kind of somehow get everything right, but there's a sense in which right no, only God can get everything right. We have to await. Uh, he also, I know in uh, Jesus of Nazareth talked about how he says, I think heaven simply is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is heaven where Uh, the new heavens and the new earth, human nature is fully in the presence of God. So I think we've seen that this idea that the encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ, with our reason, from the Bible, through the creed, in the liturgy, unto heaven, uh, is such a wonderful legacy. Is there any final word you wanted to say?
0: One of the things that I'm most touched by his Christology in the Jesus of Nazareth volumes, but also in an earlier volume published by Ignatius Press called Behold the Pierced One, yeah. is he he talks about, and this comes up a lot in his writings, the fundamental thing that Jesus is aware of and revealing is that he's the eternal son of an eternal father. So we can know God um, in a way, you know, through reason, through five ways. But what Jesus brings to us is the fatherhood of God, and he communicates his sonship to us by adoption through the life of the church. And I think that if there's going to be a Ratzinger revival in the church, it could be really meditating on the fact that Jesus reveals himself to be the eternal son of an eternal father, and that's who God truly is.
1: Well, that's beautiful. And uh, let's certainly uh, join the church in in praying for uh, the soul of Pope Benedict, uh, and, and also, you know, if, if, if we may, uh, right, asking him to intercede for us. Yeah, and uh,
0: expressing our gratitude. It's strange that he's gone, of course, and there's a certain, you know, element of sadness that comes with these types of things, but we should also have hearts full of gratitude because his life and legacy have been a tremendous blessing to the church. Absolutely.
1: Thank you very much. Robert. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.